Well, when I was in college, my name is Will, by the way, if we haven't had a chance uh, to meet. If you're a guest with us, we're so glad you're here. But uh, my name is Will, and when I was in college, I worked with an organization on campus that our job was to bring bands and entertainers and comedians and such to campus, sort of the campus entertainment life. And part of my job was to host the talent. So I would often sometimes pick, maybe pick them up from the airport, or I would drive them around town, or I would set up their green room, their dressing room. And I learned in when I was serving in this role that uh, bands or entertainers, when they sign on to perform a show, there is often something called a contract writer. And a contract writer is where the band or the entertainment or whomever will make certain requests about what they need to perform at their best. And so this is where they make requests uh, about what they want in their dressing room. So what kind of snacks they want, what kind of food they want, what sort of entertainment do they want, you know, they, what, uh, all that sort of stuff. And there were times when I was responsible, it was my job to read the contract writer and then work with our team to make sure that we had everything the band needed. And I've got some fun stories. Uh, about the things that people ask for. And I've got some fun stories of obscure things that people ask for uh, and driving all around town trying to find it. You guys know Naughty by Nature? Uh, you should not know them. They were in church, okay? Um, I had the pleasure of driving those guys around campus, and I've got some stories, all right? Um, but nevertheless, uh, one of the most famous contract writers in all of history is Van Halen. Uh, the band, the 80s metal hair band, uh, Van Halen, they had a famous request that in their green room, in their dressing room, there was to be a large bowl of M&Ms. But there was a catch to this large bowl of M&Ms. Every brown M&M had to be removed from the bowl. And Van Halen became very famous for this odd request in their contract writer. And because of this, they sort of gained a reputation of being divas, of being hard to work with, and just being altogether nitpicky or whatever. But there was actually a very good reason for why they made this request. It, their stage show was insane. Okay, this is, we live in 2021. Super Bowl Sunday is tonight. You're going to see the halftime show. We, we are accustomed to crazy arena performances being pretty normal. But in the 70s and 80s, Van Halen were, they were, they paved the way for what we now know of as an entertainment concert. And so their stage show was really unlike any, unlike anything anybody had ever seen before. Lights, pyrotechnics, big, huge, heavy props over the stage, all sorts of things, speakers, huge setups. That's normal today, but at the time, this was a new type of concert setup. And in their contract, were all the details that the stage production crew had to follow to set up their stage show. But, and because of the massive nature of the show, Van Halen knew that it could actually create a very unsafe environment if the instructions were not followed to the letter. And so what they wanted to do is they, put, they wanted to put something in their contract writer that assured them that the venue organizer had paid attention to the rules, uh, to the instructions. And so they said, no brown M&Ms in the bowl. And that way, it was a quick way that they could walk into their green room, they look in the bowl, and if they saw a bunch of brown M&Ms, they knew that the organizer did not read the contract writer close enough, and they then knew that they had to have their people go do a line check of the entire stage production so that nothing bad could ever happen, so that there couldn't be any uh, accidents or anything like that. 
So it's actually kind of cool, right? Isn't that a cool story? Why do I tell this story? I tell the story for a reason, because this afternoon we are studying the gospel, as we continue studying the gospel of John together, we hit this point in the gospel of John where Jesus is spending an evening with his disciples. It's really his last evening with them before he's crucified, and he's sort of dumping all the most important information he needs to leave with them on them before he dies. And, and on this night, he talks about the Holy Spirit. And the reason I tell the story about Van Halen is that the Holy Spirit is like the brown M&Ms of the Christian life sometimes when it comes to the Trinity. We, we neglect the Holy Spirit. We don't talk about the Holy Spirit as much. And when we do that, we are making a serious mistake. And just like a stage production, not thoroughly reading a contract writer, when we neglect the Holy Spirit, it can have severe consequences on our lives down the line. And so it's a crucial uh, to our spiritual lives that we pay attention to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, John Wesley, the, uh, the founder of Methodism, he once asked his listeners, he said, how much time have you spent considering the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life lately? And I want to ask you the same question this afternoon. How much time have you spent lately considering the presence of of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you say, well, I don't even know what that would mean. What does that look like? Well, I want us to look at John 14 today so that we can have an understanding of what it looks like to have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Look at me in John chapter 14. Jesus himself says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then verse 18 says, I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says to his disciples. I will come to you. What a beautiful statement. In verse 25, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, capital letter, helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the disciples, they've walked with Jesus for three years up to this point. They've heard all of his sermons. They've heard all of his small group Bible studies. They've watched him give sight to the blind. They've watched him cast out demons. They've watched him eat with tax collectors and sinners. And they've watched him do all these things. He's encouraged them. He's believed in them. He's motivated them. He's challenged them. They love Jesus, the disciples do, and he loves them. But now he's told them, I'm leaving. Guys, I'm leaving. And you can imagine how heartbreaking this would be for them. They didn't think he was ever going to leave. They, he was the Messiah. Messiahs don't leave. This was heartbreaking for them. But here, Jesus has said, I'm about to leave. And that's why this section of Scripture is known as the farewell discourse. Jesus, this is his farewell speech. And Jesus tells his disciples in his farewell speech that it is better for, him, for them if he leaves them so that they can be, have the Holy Spirit. He says to them, literally, it is good for you that I'm going away because there's another one who is coming for you. John 16, verse 7 says, Unless I go away, the helper will not come, but if I go, I will send him to you. This is Jesus' promise to his disciples that it is better for him to leave 
so that he, he can send the Holy Spirit. Now, my question for you is, do you actually believe this? Do you believe that it is actually better for us to have the Holy Spirit dwell with us than it is to literally have Jesus Christ beside us? Jesus' disciples had a hard time believing it, and I confess I have a hard time believing it too. I mean, have you ever thought to yourself, you're like, if Jesus was just here, like this decision that I have to make, this, you know, the, this temptation that I'm dealing with, if Jesus was sitting right next to me, life would be so much easier. It would be so easier. But Jesus himself says it's better to have the Holy Spirit within you than to have me beside you. Now, what is Jesus talking about? What is it about the Holy Spirit that makes his presence so valuable to us? And there, uh, there's one point of the sermon today that I want to make. One point, Super Bowl Sunday, we'll get you guys out of here. You can watch the game, all right, the commercials, all that stuff. The one thing I want you to see today, what, who is the Spirit? What does he do? And why is he so valuable to us? It's this, the Spirit is our advocate. He is our helper. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And whatever Bible you're holding in your lap or whatever Bible you've got with you, uh, your translation may say, um, there's all kinds of different ways that this word is translated. Our translation says helper. Other translations say comforter, counselor, encourager, strengthener, helper. And the NIV, the New International Version, translates it as the word advocate. The original Greek word that John uses is the word paraclete, which uh, the root word is parakaleo, which means para, to come alongside, kaleo, to speak. So it literally means to speak alongside of, to come alongside and to speak. And when you have a word in the, it, it, when you have a word in Greek that then is translated in 10 different ways into the English, uh, you, you might think, what's wrong with our translations? Why can't we get it right? Well, if you know multiple languages, you know that sometimes words just don't translate perfectly. And so when, our English, when you have a word that has 10 different translations, it's not that they're all wrong or that the word is impossible to translate. It's just that every word sort of gives another facet of the diamond. It's a robust word. Um, and each translation gives us another way of looking at what the biblical author is trying to say. Our translation, we use the English Standard Version, says helper. But today I want us to consider the NIV's rendering because I think it helps us understand the meaning of this word a little better, which is advocate. Now, what does it mean to be an advocate? Uh, my wife is a social worker. And the core of social work is advocacy. That's what she does. She is a, a, an advocate. And so she advocates for those who are under, under, underserved, people who are under-resourced, people who are not aware of the resources that are available to them, not aware of their rights, people that are vulnerable, people that are in that position need someone to advocate for them so that they can have the resources that they need. Oftentimes, my wife will speak for people who are unable to speak for themselves. And she spent several years early in, her, uh, in our marriage, she was advocating as a social worker for senior adults. Uh, then she transitioned to foster children, and now she works with children being placed for adoption and their birth mothers. And in all of these cases, these are groups of people who rely completely on my wife. They rely completely on her for her skill as their advocate. And what that means is that any victory that my wife secures 
any uh, victory in court, any placement of a child into a new family, any victory when it comes to policy making, anything that she secures is not attributed to her, but it's attributed to her clients. They reap the full reward of her advocacy. Another example of an advocate would be a defense attorney. Charles Hodge, the old, uh, he used to be a theologian at Princeton, and he likened the word advocate to a defense attorney. And he says, when you're standing before a court, you actually disappear into your advocate or your attorney. Tim Keller uh, sort of expounds upon this thought. He says, think about it like this. If you stammer, but your lawyer is eloquent, what do you look like in court? You look eloquent. If you are ignorant, but your lawyer is brilliant, what do you look like in court? You look brilliant. In some cases, you may not even be required to speak or even to appear personally in court. Your attorney appears in your place as your substitute. So in that case, what do you look like in court? You look like whatever your advocate looks like. If your advocate wins, you win. If your advocate loses, you lose. In short, you are lost in your advocate. You are in your advocate. In 1 John chapter 2, uh, the Bible says, We have an advocate with the Father. Who is our advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. So, if you are a Christian and you are here today, Jesus is your advocate. He stands before the Father and he advocates for you. He pleads for justice for you like a lawyer on your behalf. And for some of you, that might actually sound a little troubling. Uh, I used to think so, because I thought of it like this. I used to imagine it like this. Here's the scenario. Will McGee, I messed up like I'm prone to do. And I, I, I messed up. I did the thing again. I, I did the thing I said I would never do. And now Jesus is standing before his father, the judge. And the father says to Jesus, here is Will McGee. He has not kept my commandments. He has not loved me with all his heart, his soul, his mind, his strength. He certainly has not loved his neighbor as himself. He is a sinner. He's always been a sinner. He continues to sin, and the wages of sin is death. Therefore, he's got to go. And I've imagined it like this. Then Jesus steps forward and says, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait a minute. Father, give the guy one more chance. He's had a tough week. He's got a lot on his plate right now. He's working on his temper. He really is. He's working on his bitterness. He really is a good guy. He's just in a tough spot right now. God, Father, give him one more chance. Have mercy on him. And the, I, that, if that is our understanding of what the relationship of Jesus advocating for us is like, that's comforting, but only to an extent, right? Because at some point, you wonder, is Jesus going to be like, you know what, forget it. I'm not, putting my li I'm not putting my reputation on the line for that guy again. I'm not going to the Father again on that issue. Like, I, 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 again, I'm not going to put my name on the line for this guy again. It's been 36 years, and Will keeps messing up. But hear this. Jesus is an advocate. Jesus is not asking for leniency for your sins. He isn't even asking for mercy. He's asking for justice. 
Jesus is advocating to the Father, and when Jesus advocates to the Father on your behalf, this is what it looks like. Jesus looks at the Father, the judge, who is perfect and righteous and just in his judgment, and Jesus looks at the Father and says, yes, Will is guilty, more guilty than he even knows. He doesn't even comprehend how guilty he is. And yes, he keeps doing the same things over and over and over again, even after he's promised that he won't do them again. And yes, Father, your word says that the wages of sin is death, but I have paid for it all. Because your word also says that the gift of God is eternal life. And it would be unjust for you, Father, to be angry at will for this sin because I've already paid the full price and I've absorbed the full punishment for it and I have given will my righteousness so by your own standard of justice father you are obligated to give him the blessings and the reward that are due to me and with great pleasure the father says you got it one of my favorite songs of all time it was actually sung at my ordination service I had a bunch of mentors come over and lay hands on me as we sang the song. It says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. This is what it means to have an advocate. And the Bible says that Jesus is our advocate. He is our helper. And you go, wait a second, we're talking about Jesus now. I thought we were talking about the Spirit. Well, the Spirit, if he had his way, we would talk about Jesus all the time. I'll get to that in a moment. But Jesus said, I'm the helper, I'm the advocate, but there is another advocate who's coming. Another advocate is on the way. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit is another advocate, another helper. And here's what this means. While Jesus is advocating for you and for me right now before the Father, the Spirit has been given to us to advocate to us and remind us of what has been accomplished on the cross. Uh, when I was in college, when I had uh, begun following Jesus, I was so excited. You guys remember when you first came to faith and just how excited you were about faith? Um, that's how I was in college. I mean, it just was, I mean, I was just so excited about following Jesus, um, but I still really struggled with some of the same old things. Anybody relate to that? Where you're like, I, I want to follow Jesus this way, but man, my, just my will keeps going this way. And so there was a lot of stumbling and falling and having God's people pick me up and all that when I was when, in those early days. And I really struggled to rid myself of some of the struggles and the vices that had a hold of me. And I remember one night in particular, um, do you guys have that, that, that thing the, the thing that keeps coming up. It's different for everybody. But we've all got the thing we always struggle with, right? And I had that, and, I, I, and I, I had that thing that I promised I would never do again. God, I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. And then I did it again, <laughs> um, as I was prone to do. And I was distraught. And I've told this story before. It was a life-changing moment. Um, but I called my friend Chase. One of my best friends of all of, in my entire life called Chase Seavers, who's just a godly guy. And I said, Chase, I said, I cannot believe I did the thing. I cannot believe I did that in front of those people and in that way after I said I would never do it again. And I said, I can't, how can I call myself a Christian? How can I even pray? 
I got this Bible sitting next to me on a nightstand. Like, I, who am I to even think I could open that thing up after what I've done? And my friend Chase said, Will, you're listening to the wrong voices. I said, what are you talking about? He said, what does the Spirit say? He said, what's the Spirit saying to you right now? I said, I don't know, Chase. My brain is way too foggy. He said, well, the Spirit is saying this. Jesus paid it all. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he said, Will, yeah, you messed up. He said, but Jesus died for that mess up. And it's covered. And the Father is not judging you for it because he's already judged Jesus for it. And Jesus has given you his righteousness. He said, so brush it off. Stand up. Confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive you and keep marching. You see, I had messed up, but in that moment, my greatest problem was not my sin. I thought it was. I thought that my biggest problem is sin in this moment. But my greatest problem was that I was not believing what the Spirit was saying to me. And the Spirit was trying to remind me of what Jesus has accomplished for me. And that is, it is finished. That sin is covered. You are clean. Now walk forward. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus and you have trusted him to forgive your sins, here's what's happening right now. Jesus is standing before the Father advocating for you. Jesus is reminding God the Father, the just judge, that your sin has been totally paid for, that you are no longer defined by your worst mistakes, you're no longer defined by your most common mistakes. You are defined only by what Jesus did on the cross and his love for you. That's happening. And the, Jesus is advocating for you, uh, on behalf of you before the Father, and the Father in his mercy is going right on, Jesus. But simultaneously, the Spirit is now in your life, and he's trying to say, hey, I just want to remind you, Jesus is advocating for you. Your sin is paid for. The, the, the role of the Holy Spirit is to remind you what Jesus has already done. John Wesley asked this question, and I ask you again, how much time have you spent considering the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? It would do us, it would serve us well to consider the Holy Spirit, wouldn't it? And the Spirit has, there's all sorts of roles and purposes that the Spirit has in the life of a Christian. He gives us gifts. He, I mean, he, he gives us power and confidence and boldness. Yes, there's all sorts of things that the Spirit gives us, but the primary role that the Spirit serves in our lives is to point us to Jesus. Jesus said so himself. John 14, 26, Jesus said, He will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The job of the Holy Spirit is to remind you what Jesus has already said. John 15, 26, When the Spirit comes, He will testify about me, Jesus said. John 16, 14, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit, you see, is like a floodlight. If, if you've ever seen a building that is floodlit, you don't, look at the, you don't look at that and go, wow, look at that floodlight. That is, that is a nice floodlight. That, they, they didn't get that at Home Depot. That's, that, is, that is some commercial, that is a commercial grade floodlight. That's a, wow, that floodlight. No. When you see a building that's floodlit, you don't notice the, you don't even notice the light. The job of the floodlight is not to draw attention to itself. The job of the floodlight is to draw attention to the building. When you look at a building that's been flooded, you, you don't say, look at that floodlight. You say, man, look at that beautiful building. 
This is the Spirit's job to point you to Jesus, to remind you that you have an advocate, to remind you that if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Him, to remind you that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for you and for me so that we might become the righteousness of God, to remind us that for God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, and whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. You see, when the Spirit is present in your life, you will be focused on Jesus. Who He is, how He feels about you, what He has done for you, what He has taught, what He has commanded you. And so we say, come on, send the Spirit. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Because we want more of Jesus. More spirit means more Jesus in our lives. And more Jesus in our lives means we are more like Jesus to the world. And more Jesus to the world means more people in the world come to know Jesus, which means on earth as it is in heaven. I want to close with a prayer today from a 9th century Benedictine monk named Rabanus. And the, the prayer is titled, Come Creator Spirit. So let me pray this over you. Come, Creator Spirit. Would you visit the minds that you have made and fill our hearts which you have created with heavenly gratitude? You who are called Paraclete, the Helper, the Advocate, the gift of the Most High God, Living Fountain, Fire, Love, Ointment of the Soul. You are the sevenfold gift the finger of God's right hand. You are the Father's solemn promise, putting words upon our lips of truth and the gospel. Light the light of our senses. Pour into our hearts love. Firm up the weaknesses of our bodies with undying strength. Cast the enemy far away. Send immediate peace so that with you in the lead we may avoid every harm. May we come to know the Father through you and the Son as well. And may we trust you, spirit of both of them, at all times and forever. Amen. So this afternoon, we're going to take communion together. And as we take communion, I want us to consider the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we, I want us to allow the Holy Spirit to point us to Jesus. You see, the bread represents Christ's body that was beaten and bruised and murdered for us. And the cup represents Christ's blood that was shed for us, that was poured out for us. And the scriptures teach that if we will trust Jesus and follow him, surrender to him, he will become our advocate and he will take away our sin, our shame, and our guilt. And we will, we will stand before God the judge and he will say he is innocent. She is innocent because of what Christ has done for us. And we will be given the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will come and dwell within us and remind us of the price that was paid on the cross. So we welcome the Spirit into this place, into our hearts right now, to remind us of the cross and of the resurrection. And so let me read the words of Paul, or Paul, the words of Jesus as quoted from Paul. Paul said, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, would you do this in remembrance of Christ? And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.